Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The experience of moving at age 13 to America from Nairobi, Kenya, bringing traditional roots of her ancestors' lives in their remote village of the Meru people of northeast Kenya, her tribal legends, family background, and her experiences in the United States are told in this edition of Radio Curious by our guest, Brenda Mababu. A woman in her mid-twenties, now working as an AmeriCorps volunteer in Ukiah, California, Brenda Mababu and I visited in the studios of Radio Curious on February 28, 2015. We begin with her description of the Meru, her family, and its importance to her. I lived in Nairobi because I went to school in Nairobi. And then over summer break, me and my sisters, we would go to Meru when we were done with school just to learn about our tribe and our culture. Meru is located in north, in the northeast of Nairobi. And my parents come from two different subgroups in the Meru tribe. So sometimes we would go to Chuka, which is my mom's subgroup. And sometimes we would go to Nari, which is where my dad's subgroup lives. And both of those areas are very remote. Um, my most vivid pictures are red dirt. Many people in Meru are agriculture farmers. No electricity. Um, you have to go to walk to the river to get water, water. Um, a lot of people grow their own food, so there aren't that many stores. Life is very, very traditional, very indigenous, I guess that's the word. What would be a real-life example of that that is different than in Nairobi? Transportation. In Nairobi, we would get on a bus or in a car to go places. But in Mary, you would walk places. And sometimes that would be for 10 miles of walking. In Nairobi, we had electricity, even though many times electricity was rationed. In Meru, there's no electricity. You have candles, you light fires. Also, we speak the Kimeru, which is the tribal language, versus in Nairobi, it's a mix of different tribes. In Meru, since only Meru people live there, you only have Kimeru being spoken. Education, schools are very different, um, which is why we went to school in Nairobi because schools in Nairobi are much more advanced. You have textbooks, you, have, you can have your own desk, you can, you're in, a, in an actual building made of bricks, whereas in Meru, sometimes school was in a um, really run-down one room that's full of maybe 50 children, and you would, might have two or three children to one desk. The stories that your grandparents told you about their grandparents and their great-grandparents, mm-hmm. have they been passed on to you? They have. What my grandparents have told me about our history is what a lot of grandparents tell their grandchildren about the Meru history. 
our history, the Meru people, or my ancestors, were once held captive as slaves in this land called Mboa. And that relates to how Israelites were held captive in Egypt, which is the story in the Bible. My people, the Meru people, es- escaped from Mboa and they crossed this huge body of water that is known as the River Mboa. In Meru, Mboa means red. So people believe that that body of water was the Red Sea. And then after crossing that um, body of water, um, they walked around in northern Africa for years. And then they arrived in East Africa, where a lot of, due to a lot of conflicts with Arabs and conflicts with other tribes, um, they were forced to move towards the Mount Kenya area, which is where the Mary people live nowadays. And that really co- correlates with the story of the, the Israelites leaving Egypt um, and walking around in the desert and landing in Canaan. Now, I'm not sure if the implication is that we are descendants of Israelites, but that is, that is how the story has always been told to me. And since we don't have written down facts, I... I don't know. After dinner, you sit down with your grandparents and they just tell you stories about your ancestors, stories about life, and they always have a moral or a goal in them. And that's that's how it happened with the story of my ancestors. I was just told the story. In the stories with a, a moral or a goal, mm-hmm. is there one that you could share with us? There's one specific story that my grandma told me and my sisters. Um, And it's always been my favorite one. And it was the story of how the hyena fell into a hole. So one day the hyena was walking and the hyena didn't know there was a trap. And it fell inside the trap, which was a hole dug in, um, in the ground. And then a man came walking about and the hyena heard the man and he called out to him and he said, can you help me? Can you get me out of this hole? And uh, the man went over to the hyena. Um, he went down into the hole to see if he could help the hyena. But the hyena started eyeballing him and the hyena said, I'm really hungry. Um, do you mind if I just eat a little bit of you and then that will help me get out of the hole? And the man used his wisdom and he said, you know... My body parts right now are a little skinny. Let me go out. Let me get out of this hole and go get you um, a much bigger. And there, I mean, this it's not very logical if you really think about this story. But back then, it was logical to me. <laughs> so the man told the hyena, um, I'm going to get out of the hole and go find a bigger part of my hand or a bigger part of my foot that you can eat. And I'll bring that to you so that you can be even more full. And the, the hyena, out of greed, said, okay, go ahead. And so the man walked up, walked out of the hole and he left the hyena there. And the moral of the story is, um, first of all, when you're trying to help someone who's ungrateful, it's like trying to help a hyena out of a hole. So first of all, be grateful if you want someone to help you in the future. And second of all, it's also wise to discern people, a situation that you can help someone and a situation where the person might take advantage of you. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Brenda 
Mubabu, who is currently living in Ukiah, California, the home of Radio Curious. Until she was a young teenager, she lived in Nairobi, Kenya, often visiting her grandparents in a nearby community uh, where the Meru people live, two to three hours northeast of Nairobi, Kenya. And then she moved to the United States. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Brenda, I'm curious about the different ways children are treated, boy children and girl children, within your tribal background uh, and the different expectations that they're taught to have as to how they would be as adults. There are definitely gender-specific roles that are expected of children, and you start learning those when you're young. Uh, With girls, as me and my sisters, I remember... um, we were first we started learning to cook when we were very very young because you're expected when you grow up to be the main person to cook in the house and you're the you're cleaning and if you can the best role for a girl is to be a stay-at-home mother so it's very traditional roles boys as they're growing up they're taught things such as hunting and by hunting, I mean it's a daily thing. It's not just every now and then when you're not in school, we'll go hunting. It's a daily thing. Taking care of cattle. Um, they're taught to work outside in the farm, to build things. And another thing is also males, men go through a ritual of uh, circumcision when they're teenagers. Um, and in my tribe, um, there was an issue of female genital mutilation a few years ago, but that has faded off. And now girls do not go through that initiation into adulthood by circumcision. Only men do. And there's a very special ritual that happens. And after that ritual, boys are taught to not show a lot of emotions. Um, So things like crying or showing too much affection in public. Um, Men are, after circumcision, Men of the Meru tribe are taught to not show too much emotion, but women are allowed to show emotions. Why is it, do you think, that genital mutilation was stopped for females but not for males? Um, with females, it was a lot, of, a lot due to um, deaths or an increase in maternal mortality rate because of complications during childbirth. Um, and also um, infections, because with uh, female genital mutilation, a lot of times um, the equipment that was used was not sanitary. It was literally just like a kitchen knife or a blade that has been sitting around rusting for a while. So it wasn't sanitary, and because a lot of women were dying, um, that's part of the reason that they stopped doing that, and also education. Um, there's been a lot of education about the um, the dangers and risks that come with the practice of uh, FGM. And um, due to the education, people have slowly stopped. There is There are still people who do it, but it's looked down upon now because it causes death. When did this change come about? I would say within the early 1990s, yeah. So it's it's still in progress. <laughs> it's not fully out, but... 
How about the differences in education for boys and girls? Is there any? Mm-hmm. Yes, there are. Um, so in Meru, a lot of um, a lot of boys go to school, and that's for some reason there is this belief that men are able to withhold information better, and when they're when they grow up, they can go out and work. But with girls, um, when there isn't money, when the family doesn't have money. Um, they tend to tell the girls to stay home. And that's because in the long run, women are not expected to go out and work. They're expected to stay at home and take care of the kids. And it's not verbally spoken. And it's not, it's just, um, I think, a thought that exists that girls are not smart. So it's wasting your money if you're sending a girl to school, if she's not smart. And in the future, she's not going to work. She's just going to stay at home. So if you don't have a lot of money, and just invest what you have in the boy because he's more likely to have a bright future than the girl who's more likely to stay at home. Do you have brothers? No, I only have sisters. So looking back on your family relationship, mm-hmm. what is it uh, that you reflect on that encouraged your parents to educate their daughters, you and your sisters? I definitely think a huge advocate for that was my mother. Her mother was the daughter of a chief. In Meru tribes, we are organized in different clans, and the clans have chiefs in them, similar to how here in the United States you might have Native Americans, and there are chiefs for different tribes. So my grandmother was the daughter of a chief, and when the first a few of the first missionaries that arrived to um, in Meru, um, when they arrived there, they were greeted by my great-grandfather, who was the chief at the time, and they emphasized to him the need for education. And he, because he had money, I think a lot of it is because he had money, um, he was able to educate all of his children, including my, my grandmother, and she became a nurse. And um, my grandmother was able to raise... Um, I, I think it's eight children. Uh, I, I forget. But yeah, she was able to raise her children, my grandmother, um, with that same belief that everybody should be educated, even, even if she didn't have a lot of money. Um, so my grandmother instilled that those values of education is important, even in girls, to my mother and I believe that that's also why my mother was able to advocate for us to go to school, regardless of whether we were girls or whether we had a lot of money. And my father, I think, I think he just didn't have an option but to educate us because we, we were the only kids that were coming out. There was only girls, so <laughs> might he, as well educate them. <laughs> was your father supportive of the education that you received? Yes. Yeah. He's a very strong, he's also a very strong advocate of um, us getting educated. And like I said, my grandfather was a teacher and he also raised his children with the same values. And since my, my mother and my father so, saw the value of education for boys or, or girls. And at the time that my parents were also entering the world as young adults entering the working world, um, women were also were also working at the time. They were starting to get out there and get jobs, um, secretaries mostly. But 
um, with people coming in like um, Martha Karura. She's she's a great activist in Kenya. She was. Um, um, women were able to see the value of girls being educated because they could be something in the government or influential as nurses or doctors. And so my parents also had that. Um, they also believed that whether it's a girl or a guy, education was important in the future because we were, we were progressing towards women starting to work in the same areas as men. At some point, your family um, met missionaries. Yes. And that resulted in you coming to the United States. Yes. How long was it after you met the missionaries and before you came to the United States? It was about four years. What happened during that period of time that resulted in your family being able to move? Well, we were living under very poor conditions in Nairobi. And my parents had gone to a crusade. In Kenya, we call them crusades, but it's like a concert, a Christian concert. And that's where my parents met the missionaries and they explained the situation to them. And the situation at the time was we had literally no money. <laughs> it was very, very difficult to live in Kenya. My parents explained to, the, explained to them our situation and that they wanted to educate the girls, even though there was barely any money. I'm not sure how the discussion went, but they wanted to sponsor us. They wanted to give us a chance. And so my father came first and he lived in the United States for one year. Then my mother came and just observed a little bit. Two years later, we were able to come. So as a uh, young woman of 13 or so, mm -hmm. and you moved here, mm -hmm. what was it like leaving Kenya, your homeland, your tribe, the Meru? It was bittersweet. <laughs> the sweet part, the good part was I wasn't, I didn't have to struggle anymore. And it was very, very difficult. I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, and I think a lot of the reasons it was difficult was a lack of security. Um, like here in the, in the United States, I can walk around and feel perfectly safe. Um, but in Kenya, um, there was a huge lack of security. We had a lot of theft, a lot of murder. There was also a lot of unrest because of politics, um, not knowing where food was, gonna, was going to come from. Um, and in Kenya, when you're poor, it's really hard to come out of poverty. It's not like here where there are, there are things like food stamps and you know um, all this support that the government offers. So it was sweet in the sense that I knew I was going to a place where I knew there was food all the time. <laughs> I knew there was going to be running water. I knew there was going to be hot water. Um, I knew there was going to be um, education. I knew education was going to be free. I didn't how, have to worry about that. How did you know this before you left Kenya? Media. <laughs> and I had this image painted of the United States. I feel like a lot of third world countries have this image painted of the United States by media, that it's this luxurious place where there's an abundance of food and an abundance of everything. So, But it was also um, tough for me because... I was living everything I knew. And I, at the time, I was a teenager. And I mean, you're already going through the changes of being a teenager or growing up. And um, living 
the language I was used to, living the food I was used to, living the the social norms I was used to, living my family. Yeah, it was it was hard, but I knew I was making a choice that in the future hopefully would help me go back and um, make the situation better for others. Did your experience live up to your expectations and the images that you saw in the media? Okay, that's a very <laughs> in-depth question. Uh, I would say in terms of resources, it has met and exceeded my expectations. The fact that I could go to school and not worry about being sent home or my parents having to worry about getting money so that they can send me to school, that is huge. I don't think a person who has never been restricted from going to school would understand that, how valuable it is. Because I had, I had a chance. Whereas in Kenya, when you don't have money and you can't go to school, you literally don't have a chance. America has also met my expectations in terms of food. There's always food. I always know I have a place to live. Well, not necessarily, but right now I do. Um, and I can have a hot shower. I have electricity. I have access to technology. I, I feel safe. I know that um, the government here, even though a lo- it has a lot of downfalls, but there is true democracy. And I have a right as a person, as a girl, I have a right. The ways that it didn't meet my expectations is I think I had heightened people. I thought if I go to America, people there are going to be extremely nice and everything. But I find that, you know, we're all human and we all we're all fallible. I thought I thought people in America are perfect because in TV, I saw people who were perfect. (laughs) Are you a dual citizen of Kenya and the United States? Yes. I waited 10 years before I got my citizenship. And um, part of that was because of this inner conflict with feeling like I was betraying my true, who I really am as a Kenyan. Who are you really as a Kenyan? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's a really good question. I would say, even though everything on the outside has changed, like where I live and what I eat and how I interact and the language that I speak a lot of times, even though all of those things have changed, I still feel like that girl in my tribe, in in Meru. I still relate most deeply when I hear Kimeru or Swahili, I feel at home. When I eat food that I make, that's Kenyan food, I feel at home. When I walk in places that are very remote, very isolated, not in the city, I feel at home when I listen to Kenyan music or, or African drumming music. I feel at home. I feel like me. But we all have to adjust to the changes. Physically, things change. But internally, I'm still that young girl living in my tribe. Very remote and very indigenous. Not always having to have a reason for things. Just living a simple life that is very community-centered. In your experience um, in the United States, has racism been a part of it? It has, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's strange. When I moved to the United States, racism was different in that the word minorities, 
I, it caught me off guard when someone told me I was a minority. I was like, what? <laughs> a minor to someone else? Yeah, I've experienced racism because of the color of my skin. And I've also experienced racism because before I became a citizen, I was not African-American. I was African and I had an accent. What is your work now as an AmeriCorps volunteer here in Ukiah, California in the winter of 2015? So I'm a community health corps member. I do outreach for the dental department and I also do um, health coaching for people who have diabetes. Well, Brenda Mababu, mm-hmm. I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious and, yes. and ask a couple of questions more about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there an aha or a eureka moment in your life that changed the course of your life that um, you can share with us? And I realize you've shared many yeah. up, to, up to this <laughs> point in our visit. Yeah. I've had a lot. (laughs) I've had a lot of aha moments. I have a lot of friends who are refugees, immigrants, and we've had very in-depth discussions about life. And some of these, some of my friends, I can relate very deeply with them because they have been through very intense um, wars and um, poverty and also, I think an aha moment that I had was through all these discussions with my friends and through my personal reflections um, with my relationship with God. Um, I guess it's not really an aha moment. It's an aha thought uh, is that our, t- our time is ticking and it ends. Our time ends. And I think when I realized that, my time here on earth will end. And a lot of that came about because of my close, some of my close friends passing away or just hearing of the near-death experiences that people have gone through and also the ones that I've experienced and realizing that my time is limited, I think, has really catapult, catapulted me to live intentionally. And by living intentionally, I mean loving people, being and being open to new experiences. What would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? I want to serve people. I want to serve people and show people love in action and also love through emotion. Yeah, I just want to serve and love people. And finally, Brenda Mababu, Mm -hmm. is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? The number one book I would recommend is the Bible because that's like my favorite book right now. But another book that I would also recommend is Little Bee by Chris Cleave. I think it chronicles the experience of refugees and immigrants who transition from poverty or war into a world that has so many resources and security. Um, So yeah, I would recommend Little Bee by Chris Cleave. Brenda Mababu, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. (laughs) Brenda Mababu immigrated from Kenya with her family to the United States in 2003 at the age of 13. Many of the legends of her Meru tribe guide her life. The books that Brenda Mababu recommend are The Bible, 
and Little Bee by Chris Cleave. This interview was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on February 28, 2015. There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail at 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.